You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck, here with Adriana Lopez Villalobos. Hi, Adriana. Hi, Sarah. So, Adriana, our topic today is fascinating, and it's probably the first time we've included the work of a philosopher and discussed diversity, equity, and inclusion. What can you say about this? I also found this conversation fascinating because it's not only about plants. Yeah, it is about plants, but it's plants intertwined with our cultural viewpoints. I think it provides a nice, comprehensive perspective of how we think about ecosystems and the species that live in them. Should we give a disclaimer? I mean, this conversation gets into some loaded words that don't really feel comfortable. And this is because there is historical language associated with invasive plant biology that really is hard to reckon with. This conversation in some ways, though, is about human language and really culture. And there's a positive story to be found with respect to indigenous cultures and relationships with nature. Yeah, it's about definitions. And definitely a more culturally inclusive viewpoint might actually be the key to some solutions to came for our natural environment. Our guest and her multidisciplinary team have taken a unique approach that takes into account language and cultural context around how plants in complex ecosystems can be managed. We're going to hear from Dr. Susan Cordell, Director and Research Ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service. She is at the Pacific Southwest Research Station in Hilo, Hawaii, on the Big Island. In many parts of the world, we cannot uncouple the fact that humans and natural systems are linked and that pristine landscapes are often, in fact, a mirage. This quote is from a paper that you authored that was published recently in Frontiers of Ecology and Evolution. And something that's noticeable right away is that this essay gets very quickly into talking about the language we use when we talk about nature. In fact, something that I was really excited to see is that you have a philosopher among your authors. <laughs> so... Let's get right to this idea, the conversation about native plants, non-native, or if we're saying invasive plants. I think this is so much at the core of this conversation that I want to make sure that we're really defining our terms. So if you don't mind, can we start with a definition of what we're talking about when we talk about native, non-native, or invasive plants? Yeah, sure. And this is a question that a lot of people get confused by because it does get into the weeds per se. <laughs> So when we talk about native species, we can even break those down into two categories. And the first category I would break it down to is what we call endemic. And those are species that arrive and evolved in a location to the point where they exist nowhere else but that location. So a place like Hawaii, where I'm coming from, we have 90% endemism in our plant species. So it's pretty amazing. There's also a native category called indigenous. And what indigenous species are, are species that also arrived here on their own, like the endemic species, but they also exist in other places. So sometimes you get these pantropical species. You know, if you travel around the world, you say, oh, I know that species. And you probably do because it is the same species. And then when you get into the non-native, there's also several categories that people often refer to. And one of those non-native categories would be called non-invasive. And what that is, is a plant that got somewhere with the help of something rather than on its own. So it arrived 
but it doesn't seem to cause problems. It may not even survive. Many non-native, non-invasive plants don't even really perpetuate in the ecosystem. And they don't tend to become invasive, meaning they don't spread everywhere or cause harm. And then you get into the invasive category. And what those are are species that come in and they disrupt the ecosystem in ways that are harmful for plants and animals and even humans to an extent. And then in Hawaii and likely other places too, we also have another category that's non-native that we refer to as canoe plants. And these are plants that the Polynesians brought on their canoes that they required to sustain life in their former communities. So these are plants that often had high utility for food or fiber or cultural practices. And we call them canoe plants. So they have their own wow. their own category. And what's really interesting is that very few, if any, to my knowledge, of these species have become invasive. So they continue to be a really important component of plant communities here in Hawaii. I'd like to get more into that in a few minutes, this idea of cultural relationships to plants, because I realize there's so many facets to this conversation. And talking about a little bit of historical context, something I found very striking in this essay was the description of historic language being militaristic and this idea that invasive species biology. And I'm starting to realize that, you know, when we use this term invasive, it's kind of a loaded word. <laughs> so I'm curious if you could describe within this historical context what it means that militaristic language has been used in terms of invasive species biology. Yeah, sure. And a lot of this I learned when researching this paper. So, you know, working with a philosopher was really wonderful. And we need to do that more. I think multidisciplinary approaches to issues and problems can really open our eyes. So I'd really like to acknowledge my colleagues, Dr. Becky Ostertag and Dr. Celia Bardwell-Jones from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. I've been working with Becky for over 25 years on a lot of these ideas. And then my colleague, Amanda Owalu here at the Forest Service and Nicole DeMano, who has worked with us forever on our restoration projects, who's at Oregon State University. You know, my eyes opened at the same time as some of the readers opened to a lot of these concepts. And this was one of them. And I never thought about it until I started looking into it. But the idea when you look at the research comes from a paper that was a seminal paper in invasive ecology. And it was done in 1958 by Charles Elton. He was coming off of dealing with the impacts of World War II and plants and animal species that were brought in were impacting the economy, the British economy and food supply. So it probably derives because it is associated with World War II and similar terminology of something coming in and taking over is almost warlike. So it's probably where all of that started. That's where we first see it in the language. I think it just stuck and people didn't really think much about it. So the language had this sort of negative <laughs> undertone. How does that play out? You know, when we hear these words, do we actually treat a plant differently because we have this very negative impression of how we describe it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. My training, and I'm going to date myself here, but my training was in the 80s in my first view of ecology and learning about species assembly and conservation 
And in all of the readings and all of the lectures that I heard during that time, the conservation movement really felt that we needed to protect ecosystems and that no humans could be in them, that they were only valuable in the absence of human pressure. So the concept of invasive species then really quickly became a native plant is good and an invasive or non-native plant is bad. It just starts from there, that you form these opinions and you continue to replicate that to everyone you talk to. And I would even find myself talking to tourists because I live in a tourist economy here in Hawaii and people would talk about how beautiful a plant was. Oh, look at the beautiful plant, the flowering plants and the orchids and all of these things. And I would completely just discount them (laughs) and just go right, no, that's a terrible plant. You can't like that plant. It doesn't belong here and it's ruining everything. And so I would say people educated in conservation in the 80s and 90s really got that viewpoint, even in the 2000s, I would say. And it's really kind of recently where I think people's viewpoints are shifting. And if you look in the scientific literature, you're starting to see a lot of work sort of looking at this concept of native good, non-native bad. You point out that in today's context of the dialogue around diversity, equity, and inclusion, that this idea of the language of ecology and conservation, particularly around biological invasion, you're right, this does feel strangely dated when we use the term alien, exotic. These are words that we would not use about people, and we certainly can start feeling uncomfortable using them about anything. I'm curious, you know, while these words might make us uncomfortable now, this isn't just about words. This is also about changing perspectives in management of landscapes. This idea of novel systems. I'm curious if you could provide some examples of how this idea of novel systems, which you mentioned, can share that, you know, a plant might have valuable ecosystem services and maybe we can start separating away these the enemy talk and start thinking of some of these plants as at least in a neutral way, if not, you know, <laughs> no longer a militaristic way. Yeah, of course. And I think that's sort of exactly what we wanted to do with this paper is to sort of not pass judgment on plants. You know, they don't deserve that from us. <laughs> but I also want to make it clear because one of the things I worry about writing this paper, because I've been in conservation and ecology my whole career And I don't want to come off as someone that is discounting the importance of native biodiversity right? and the respect I have for that and the need for it. And we need it more than ever in our world to have functioning natural ecosystems. And I really do want to make that clear because there are many cases in many ecosystems around the world where if you just remove a threat, a single threat, whether it's logging or something, that ecosystem can recover on its own. And if a system can do that, I am all for that. We don't need to put in a ton of resources to fix something that can fix itself. So this is important for me to say because I think there's a lot of pushback in the scientific community when you start going down the line of embracing non-native species. But I do live in a place where the threat of invasive or non-native species is huge. You know, you can't go into an ecosystem that isn't touched by multiple invasive species or non-native species. So we have to think about a new way moving forward. And most people don't understand the difference between a native or a non-native forest or a novel forest. 
what they do understand is if they lose the service that nature provides to them. And that loss can be huge because all of the provisioning services that nature provides to us, it doesn't always matter if it's native or non-native. Sometimes it does. But in many cases, non-native species can provide those resources such as clean water and recreation and carbon sequestration and pollination services that other species, other native species have done. So I think people are really starting to look at that because as we're moving into a world where climate change is really impacting us, we do need to think about how other species can benefit us. So some of the examples you asked to provide in Hawaii has a lot of them and we're starting to see them everywhere actually, but because we have so many non-native species here and we have also the highest number of threatened and endangered species in the world here in Hawaii, a lot of times when an endangered species can benefit from a non-native species, that's its only way of existence into the future. So for example, there's a native tree in the Solanaceae family, which is the tomato family, that provides food habitat for an endemic and endangered caterpillar. And the tree species is also endangered. So it's a situation where they both require each other, but then a non-native species was brought in in the same family and has done really well and provided a similar resource. And now we see this caterpillar expanding its population with this non-native species. We also have an endangered hawk here on the island of Hawaii and its normal diet is native birds, but the native birds have declined because of invasive mosquitoes and disease coming into the system. So they have responded positively to all of the increases in rodents and they're doing very well. In fact, they just got taken off the endangered species list. So, you know, we can start to see that these services can be shared with native and non-native species. Well, now the jury's still out because, you know, it's hard to know if the benefits are exactly the same or as good as the native species might be. But in a way you can say, well, some service is better than no service. So I think that's sort of where you need to draw the line, but we do need to be cautious and we need to always be observing and paying attention to monitor how these interactions are going. And as a scientist, that's fun. That's what we do. <laughs> You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be right back. Providing expert tree care for 115 years and growing. Family-owned Bartlett Tree Experts brings a rare mix of groundbreaking science, award-winning safety practices, and global resources to every tree care task at hand. And at the heart of our success are our people, experts who know and champion every tree, no matter the species. Discover how our passion for trees is inspiring one beautiful property after another. Call 877-BARTLETT or visit Bartlett, B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T dot com.
What's a realistic view of how many species are causing the trouble? If we've got non-native species, a lot of them, not all of them are being harmful. Can you give a sense of which ones are bad? Which let's not, I'm not going to say bad. (laughs) Which ones are causing trouble? (laughs) I know we always have to correct our own language now that we've written this paper. So it's actually a small percentage. You would be surprised. You know, I'll take Hawaii as an example again. In Hawaii, there's about eight to 10,000 plant species that have been introduced. And of those, about 1,000 have been successful enough to have self-sustaining populations. So that's already 10% of the 10,000, let's say. And of those 1,000, there's only 90 that are really considered problematic. So I guess it's about 10% of the self-sustaining population. So it'd be about 1% of the introductions. Wow. So all these other introduced, maybe introduced is a good term to use, these non-native plants, what are a lot of them doing? They're hanging around maybe being fairly unsuccessful? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard life. You know, you come to a volcanic island and you have to deal with very little soil and it's hard to make a go at it. And so to be successful, you have to have the right set of traits. And then you also need your pollinators and the other things that require it to maintain its life cycle. I love how you share this, what you call a place-based approach, this idea that there are solutions or this moderate space that you're entering saying, okay, here's perhaps a non-judgmental way to look at some of these circumstances that are the right circumstances to consider okay, are these plants causing trouble? Is this a novel situation where the species interactions are good? And you have this graph that you share in the essay, which I think is cool. It's sort of a weight scale image. And you show things like non-native species could be evaluated on these various aspects of how they play with others. Can you describe what your approach was, just how you came up with this idea of like, how do you, you know, how do you make sure you're using an equitable view, I guess? Yeah, sure. You know, we have put a lot of thought into this. And most of the colleagues that are co-authors on this paper have been discussing these ideas for a long time because we've tried to work in these lowland wet systems and we've tried to restore them. And we have had no luck at all. And we finally found that, you know, the only way we were going to have luck is either we were just going to garden these small patches to promote the native biodiversity, or we needed to find a hybrid system where maybe we could use other species to help serve a function to help promote native biodiversity. So we really went back and forth on all of these different theories and approaches of community assembly and thinking about that in all of our ecology training. And we had a postdoc working with us at the time and she really summed it up. And I'm gonna use her analogy because I thought it was so brilliant to fantasy football. Wow. (laughs) Now, I don't really know fantasy football. So some of your listeners may laugh at my interpretation of it, but you want the big blockers, right? And you want the fast quarterbacks and you want all of the different components and traits that you want of humans so that you find this perfect team. And so we started thinking about these combinations of plants that could work together and help each other in the same way. So the way we did this, and we all have some training in it, is we use sort of biological metrics, what we call functional traits. And these are traits that plants have that allow them to utilize resources like nutrients and water. And plants have many, many different strategies and many, many different functional traits. 
So we thought maybe we could use this. Maybe we could have a combination of species that grow really fast together with species that are slow growing and sequester carbon slow. Some that can use nitrogen quickly, others that decompose slowly, big leaves, small leaves, shade tolerance, deep rooted, shallow rooted, so that you're partitioning the resources in a system so that many things can work together rather than a system where everything is competing for the same resource. So this sort of aligns with theories of ecology of what we call complementarity and redundancy. So complementary systems are systems that have very different functional traits, like I mentioned. And so that that system tends to be more resilient if you look at the literature about that higher biodiversity can exist when they have complementary traits. And so we thought, how can we combine these things and create our fantasy plant team to help with our goals? And our goals were to promote native biodiversity and to reduce the likelihood of aggressive species in our system so that they're more resilient and can perpetuate on their own. So that's sort of where this idea came from, where we promoted these hybrid ecosystems and we set up an experiment to test that. And we're still monitoring that experiment. It's over a decade old. It really started affecting our thoughts about how these novel systems work and how we can evaluate plants, not saying they're good or bad, but that some play better together than others. This really goes back to this original quote that I read earlier about this idea that pristine landscapes are perhaps a mirage. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on this idea, because human involvement seems to be where we are. At least there may be patches of the world that are still wild. But I think when we talk about the Pacific region, we are living in places that have been human managed for an enormous amount of time, <laughs> and in some cases, as long as humans have been in these places. So you're analyzing all of the parts that it's almost like a recipe. You know, it's interesting. It's like, here are all the pieces that you know, <laughs> we need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We don't want something that's going to overpower everything. It's a really interesting view. You just mentioned the human relationship. And I'd love to hear you talk more about how that because clearly there are cultural relationships people have to plants, and that's yet another another layer. Yeah, I love your recipe analogy. I'm going <laughs> to use that one if that's okay. I like the fantasy football too. Okay, we can both share. You know, the super team is fun. Yeah, the more you read in the literature, and there's a lot of new studies coming out now that many forests that people thought were pristine have had a human footprint, including the Amazon and other areas where we just assumed that these were untouched areas. But actually have been managed for utility by humans forever and have been shaped by that. And, you know, Hawaii is definitely a case where that has happened and many indigenous cultures around the world. Humans aren't separate from nature. Humans are part of nature. And the whole concept in Hawaii called aloha aina really is that. It translates to a love of the land or taking care of the land that nourishes you. There's probably many different forms of cultural rules that people had to follow to manage these functioning forests. And we can learn a lot from that. We really, really can. And I think people are starting to do that. 
So, you know, in modern times, we have a similar relationship with nature. It's different than the past because most of us don't make the connection between food and fiber with forests, even though it's there, we just don't see the production line. But we do need to have nature for beauty and awe and inspiration. So we have maybe different values that we associate it with, but nonetheless equally important. So that's part of the recipe, right? This idea that the human is part of the system. And maybe this does bring us back to this idea of diversity and allowing inclusion. You know, we're all we're all part of it. That's really cool. If you don't mind, let's turn to gardeners a little bit and individuals just thinking about how these bigger ideas apply. And for those of us who are really interested in stewardship of our landscapes, what do you think is a takeaway for those of us who are just as an individual thinking about being a participant and gardening? I think gardeners might even have a leg up because they're already putting things together that either they like or want, or they want to eat, or they want to look at, or they want to see the butterflies that come to pollinate it. And so there's already that idea that you have this image or this perspective of what you want to see in your garden. And so you're already making decisions. If something comes in and takes away all those, you're going to work hard to make it go back to what you want. So that's the ultimate (laughs) place-based approach is is a gardener. And, you know, I think maximizing complementarity in a system, like I talked about earlier, is always a good goal. I think if you can put things together that utilize resources differently, you can really extend the resources that you have. And I think based on ecological principles, the more resources you have and the more diversity you have in a system, whether it's native or non-native, it's going to increase the resilience of your resource and your place. So I think gardeners inherently do that, maybe not without knowing that it's utilizing scientific principles, but it seems to be reflective. You know, being a gardener myself, I have a sense of peace and awe and beauty when I go out to my garden because it has the things I really like in it and then also provides me food and it feels so good to have all of those things come from something that I can do with my hands. So one thing that is very sad in Hawaii is the loss of species and the prediction of future loss. And those stories can be replaced, you know, of the importance of these plants and their connections. And some endangered species are really hard to recover, but others actually you just remove the threat that took them to extinction or to the level that they're at, and they do fine. Some of them actually can grow like weeds. And so I'm really a proponent of gardeners and practitioners and educators, and even working with obscure agencies that we don't normally work with, the scientists like Department of Transportation, and incorporating these endangered species into our plantings so that we can broaden the awareness to more people and plant them in schoolyards and help perpetuate the survival of these species. So I I think that's another way that gardeners can really help with this, you know, in terms of taking care of the biodiversity that we're losing. You're absolutely right. That's a real opportunity. And, you know, it is interesting to think maybe there are some ways we can 
socially and culturally come to terms with some of these losses by connecting, reconnecting to nature, reconnecting to these plants. Yeah, I really like that. We have these social changes that are happening right now. I think there's such an awareness around social issues, access to land, access to plants and green space and urban settings. I think we're reaching a really much more sophisticated set of conversations about the social existence humans have. Yeah, I hope so, you know, and it's great. It's wonderful to see this. But we also need to do this for the natural world because novel ecosystems, for most of us, is all we're ever going to see. Very few of us have the ability to get out to these vast, wild places. And so we need to derive the benefits from plants right in our backyards or in our communities. Adriana, this is really a data love thing. (laughs) I really like how Susan shared some real numbers about how many species of non-native plants are actually causing problems. Not every plant from another place is bad or capable of causing trouble. I mean, we have to find ways to live with the situation we're in and be selective about our resource use. And yes, sometimes that might mean removing a plant that is a serious problem and focusing in on that. But there's this whole array of other plants that might be playing a positive role or might not actually be doing much, (laughs) much at all. (laughs) In that sense, it's about selecting the components that all contribute to, again, this novel ecosystem idea. There might be some kind of balance to be found. It's like a new ecosystem for me in real time. (laughs) Wow. And this data-driven science interpretation also lends this more equitable view. Take some of the alien species and other poisonous-sounding language out of the conversation. It really does. It is important, though, for us to recognize that we have talked to a lot of scientists that don't like this idea of novel ecosystems. And this idea of a pragmatic approach what Susan's team calls a site-specific process, an index of species belongingness. This place-based method of determining viability of non-native plants, this is not an idea that's shared by everyone in the field. Yeah, I think it also takes time, right? Like with any new theory of idea, it takes time to build some of the empirical evidence needed to be accepted widely. But we're in an unprecedented time and there is room for new ideas and theories. Well, and I can't tell you how often people have said that. I've heard a lot of scientists say what we're experiencing isn't what they taught me in the 80s, in the 90s. (laughs) You know, someone who is expecting the climate to maintain the same set of rules, it's just not applying. Somewhere in between, perhaps. Yeah, it's like a spectrum, right? Like I think an ecologist who really dislikes this idea of a novel ecosystem, maybe they're willing to make certain practical decisions, but someone who more deeply embraces it, maybe it's because they're in an environment like the one Susan is in. I wonder, thinking as garden futurists, knowing that islands are already extremely vulnerable places with pressures and extreme climate chaos and this complex blend of non-endemic plants. Are we seeing the future, possibly even of the West Coast, through time machine goggles when we look at Hawaii? I also like to think as a futurist, but the truth is 
that I don't think we have the right answers or solutions yet. What we do have is theory and empirical evidence. And then we have islands like Hawaii, which have served as model systems for understanding ecological and evolutionary processes. Like what you see on other islands in the Pacific or even in Asia, right, that are getting floated or people are being displaced, extinction rates are highest. These are where we should put all the emphasis now on understanding what's going on. Perhaps we are just witnessing an experiment in real time, which can allow us to glance into the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. If you liked Garden Futurist, please share it on your favorite social media platform or follow us on Spotify. Find us at pacifichorticulture.org.